me, AB, I'm Matt Pellish, and this is Office Hours, the weekly podcast on the biggest issues in education today. You say something like surfing a tsunami, it sounds a little bit crazy. Then you hear Inside Higher Ed's news editor, Paul Fain, talk about what his last few months have been like. This week, EAB's Carla Hickman sits down with Paul and talks about what are some of the underreported stories, as well as those that got the most attention during the current pandemic. They're going to share some thoughts about reopening the campus in the fall. They're going to talk about how COVID-19 actually impacts equity and what the economic downturn might mean for colleges and universities. Will we see a bump in enrollment like we did back in 2008 or not? Thanks for listening, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. I have to admit, I am really looking forward to our conversation today. This is Carla Hickman, back with you for another episode of Office Hours with EAB. I am joined by a very special guest today because our topic uh, allows me to turn the tables. I get to interview the interviewer, talk all things COVID-19, higher ed in the news, with the news editor for Inside Higher Ed, Paul Fain. So, Paul, welcome to Office Hours, and thanks for being with us. Hey, Carla. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. Uh, Before we jump into the news, I heard a rumor I was hoping you could confirm for me that we might have something surprising in common. So uh, I know you don't know this. I have two nephews who about 75 to 80% of their wardrobe right now is all Cincinnati Bengals uh, because (laughs) my brother-in-law happens to be from Cincinnati and he would also say he's a long-suffering Bengals fan. So can I put you in that camp with them? You know, I that that is on my web bio. I I love the Cincinnati Bengals. Like it's my first memories are actually the Cincinnati Bengals. Yeah. But the last few years, I have to admit, I have not been watching. And, I mean, uh, it's been a little tough to watch, as I like to tease him. <laughs> yeah, but that's been that way for you know 30, 40 years. So, uh, but I think I have. I feel a little guilty, like I've betrayed my team um, by not watching much. But who knows? Hope well, springs to- eternal. There you go. Well, hopefully we can spring some hope eternal for our higher ed clients too in the midst of some pretty difficult uh, situations unfolding. I actually would love to start with you. Um, I've been thinking from my vantage as a researcher, trying to stay on top of the decisions, the announcements, everything that is changing seemingly at lightning speed with COVID-19. What does that feel like from your vantage point? I mean, there's always late breaking news in your world, but what has it felt like in the midst of COVID-19 when it comes to the pace of staying on top of what's happening out there? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It, it is very different. I mean, without a doubt, even in the you know early March, this is the biggest story by far that I've covered in my 16, 17 years of covering higher ed. And you know, we, we saw um, an initial spike in reader traffic when we were covering, Elizabeth Red, my colleague, the China situation, the impact on international students. You know, obviously a, a tremendous interest from readers and what was going on there and, and how it would affect them. And early on, uh, you know, reading some of the statements from some of the highly selective research universities, MIT, Washington, uh, Stanford, where they would cite their own uh, health experts and they have like the world's top experts saying mm-hmm. we're going to have to limit public gatherings. And so, you know, we were actually, I, I think helped in the sense that higher ed was quick and in the crucible early on this crisis. Um, so we were able to really expand the types of coverage we do. We've added a lot of new products, including, as you know, a podcast I do called the key, um, but really just trying to get as much information as we can out 
to readers. And in some ways, you know, we're always being a bit of a public information portal at Inside mm -hmm. Higher Ed, but more than ever. Um, you know, yesterday, I think it was yesterday, keeping track of time is a real problem <laughs> these days. Big uh, challenge. Yeah, we put up uh, the CDC's guidelines for schools mm -hmm. and colleges. And one of the most read stories of all time for us. And, you know, it, our, we did a good job, I think, of covering that story, but really just got it out there for people. Because um, there's just a hunger for information. And frankly, uh, sometimes not enough guidance from above um, for the college leaders as they're trying to make these decisions. So, you know, I, I do, I will say I feel bad about uh, my inbox right now. I'm not getting mm -hmm. back to people as I would very much like to be. There are stories that on a normal day, like I remember early on, there was confusion about the stimulus and whether or not colleges that contracted with OPMs, online program management companies, mm -hmm. could access stimulus funds. And I, I don't think I even noted it, uh, you know, and I think mm -hmm. at one point I put it up as an update of a couple graphs and like in a normal week, that would be a huge story for us. And it's, it's, it is, and it's a lot of tough calls about where to kind of go big and to commit resources to cover stories that, because there's just too much. Yeah, I've, I've been feeling that on the research side where, you know, we have hundreds of questions that are coming in every day from university and colleges we work with trying to make some very big decisions and just being able to know, are we giving appropriate guidance? Uh, you know, is the Department of Education going to change their minds? You know, who's out there ahead of the curve? Um, interesting that you mentioned some of the stories that have been getting traction. I know I was reading with interest um, pieces like the 15 various instructional models that might happen in the fall. I've heard you say that that was one of the ones that also garnered a lot of attention. There are other stories like that that help you understand sort of where people are at, what's, what seems to be resonating. Yeah, you know, that that piece, which was by one of our bloggers, Josh Kim, with a co-author, I, I believe is one of the most well-read, if not the most read in our history. It was over 300,000 unique readers. And, you know, he just did a great job of laying out 15 different scenarios that uh, college leaders might be planning for for the fall. And again, you know, I, I just, I will say this, I do not envy uh, college administrators right now. Like, Sometimes they reach out and say, hey, you must be really scrambling, must be really hard. Yeah, it is, but I'm sure your, your job is harder. Not a lot of weekends going on in higher ed right now. Um, That's for sure. Yeah, anything about fall planning has been very, uh, it's consumed with, with vigor by our readers. Um, you know, uh, my colleague Doug Letterman did a piece looking at one piece of those 15 scenarios, the high flex mm -hmm. model, um, as I like to say, quoting Zoolander, high flex is so hot right now. Um, but, <laughs> Isn't but, it though? <laughs> you know, <laughs> trying to figure out how to do a flexible version of hybrid where students will have choice. Um, and, and, you know, again, it, I, I get that we're often able to talk to people who are early adopters, do things well, and then get that information out to other colleges so they can study it. But it feels like that's happening more than ever, that, that you know, people are making decisions with enormous uh, implications and, and using our coverage in part, I think, to help to know what their colleagues are doing, which is a little scary. And I'll, I'll just say one other one. I mean, I, I, I like having that role, but it makes me nervous given just the uncertainty. Um, mm -hmm. It's the high stakes stuff. The, uh, our coverage by Lila Burke, one of our reporters on the move to pass fail, mm -hmm. was another one. You know, we see things like she was on day one, she had actually talked to the University of Washington the day before they moved to remote instruction. And we were both feeling a little nervous about 
hinting that they're considering this. And then the next morning they did it, you know? (laughs) And so she's been covering a lot of these decisions where dominoes fall very quickly. And early on, she did a story about pass fail and, and had uh, major university administrators reaching out to her to, to ask for information about that move. Um, and then, you know, continued to cover it because as you know, uh, it, it's a lot harder than it sounds to, to, to transform an entire grading structure to pass Overnight. fail, particularly for students that are trying to transfer to a four-year institution from a community college or um, go to med school or graduate school. And uh, I'll, I'll just, one more anecdote. I, I actually, uh, Notre Dame reached out to me and their incoming provost who was previously at Rice had been had started a campaign to get uh, the medical school association to encourage their members to accept pass fail transcripts and wanted to get the word out. And she came on the podcast and, you know, told me later that she had had a webinar with the med school association. But, you know, these are these are implications that have decisions that affect students in a big way. And I really feel like college administrators are struggling to get information out about how to deal with it. I think that's exactly right. I actually do a lot of work with um, deans of graduate schools who now that decision has been made and we've moved to pass-fail grading and now we need to relook at the admissions requirements for our graduate programs and make some tough calls. And it it is that sense of dominoes. I think as soon as one of those medical schools or business schools makes a decision on what those admissions requirements will look like, then the rest are scrambling to, to, you know, follow suit. Yes. Um, One of the things that you said there that I think is so interesting is... uh, certainly everyone is asking about the announcements, right? And it seems like one person makes a move where they say they're going to do something different in the fall and then we follow suit. I'm noticing that right now with this notion of a contracted uh, fall term. So either moving the term early and then ending with Thanksgiving. What do you make of some of these plans? I will admit from my vantage as a researcher, I think that behind the scenes, no one is quite sure yet exactly what it's going to look like. Is that your sense too? Yes, totally. Uh, You know, uh, as a journalist, I'm old school. I try not to inflict my opinion on the way you know, you know we cover the news, but it's difficult. Uh, you, know, you do have hunches and, and you talk to sources and they influence how you view things. And, and very rarely have I been so confused. Uh, you know, I, I'll talk to a college president who tells me he and his peers have been discussing, and while they might not say it publicly, the airborne risk of infection mm-hmm in a residence hall or a large classroom is just so substantial that they can't see fall happening. Then, you know, we hear from Lamar Alexander yesterday, we can do this, we can do the testing. And uh, my reporter, uh, one of our reporters, Lila Burke, um, went out and tried to look into the testing question yesterday. And our story today, if you read it, it, it it's very, uh, it's surprising, frankly. There's an epidemiologist or a, a researcher at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who's one of the world's experts in this, who says, yeah, we can do it. It's not as hard as you think to have an adequate testing. He said it was, it was like refilling a helium tank. It's basically, you don't have to have the whole stock there. You can refill it when you need it. And that went against what I had been thinking, um, that it would even be feasible for colleges to do this. You know, um, a Dallas Community College District came out pretty early saying, Joe May, the leader there, we, we can't do this. It's not feasible for 160,000 students. You know, one of the best examples of like night and day is just a, a few, a uh, hundred miles or so apart in Indiana. You've got Purdue. That's right. Uh, Mitch Daniels, very powerful governor. Uh, he's been on all the cable TV news saying we're going to do some version of responsible uh, in-person fall. 
Michael McRobbie, the president of IU, saying it would be irresponsible um, to promise a generally in-person fall at this point. How do you square that? Two That's right. big research universities in the same state. That's right, because usually I would say, well, it's about your geography or it's about the size of your student population. Um, we've or been your running state politics. Th- there you go. And I actually think I'd love to hear a little bit more on the politics side. Um, I think I've shared with you before, I actually live in Tennessee. I grew up here and moved back. So it was interesting to me to listen to uh, Senator Alexander yesterday and think what that help committee, where where's their hat at? Um, and one of the big questions I, I wonder is how much that this pandemic has almost begun to feel partisan and it's it's creating a little bit of a divide here for some of our campuses um, on you know what they're going to be able to do, um, how much they're going to be in alignment with with various governors and and state and local officials. Absolutely. I mean, uh, this is an editorial comment, but I find it sad as a citizen that literally every decision that we make these days is has to be partisan. Mm-hmm. The, the decision of whether or not to wear a mask into a grocery store feels like a partisan issue right now. But so it's not really a surprise mm-hmm. that it plays out this way. But yes, I, I, I know for a fact that in some states, public college officials have felt, even from the beginning, a lot of pressure, um, particularly in Republican-led states, to not overreact, according to those politicians. Um, you know, Lamar Alexander, again, this was in a matter of days a huge amount of respect from Lamar Alexander across all of higher education, mm-hmm. major university president, former education secretary. I would describe him as very knowledgeable and very caring about this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think even folks on the left feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so he went out, I think it was a Sunday talk show and said, I just can't see us being ready in time to have 35,000 undergraduates at that Knoxville campus this fall. And everybody was like, whoa, you know, this is the same time when the Brown president had written in the Times that they were going to reopen. If Lamar Alexander says they can't, you know, we've got an issue. And then a few days later, I wouldn't say he reversed himself at all, but he he said something to the effect, well, I think I kind of stepped in it there. I think it could be done and and clarified. And honestly, listening to him yesterday and in our coverage, he makes a pretty convincing case. I, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is going to be. I know there are a lot of smart people who think all of these colleges promising that they're going to return in the fall are going to have to drop that. Um, but I'm not sure anymore. I really don't know. Well, I think it goes to the complexity of the situation and the fact that we are getting new information um, by the day. Uh, I thought interesting the coverage as well on places where universities have almost reclaimed their role as a check and balance um, and their ability to actually stand apart from some of the partisan rancor. Um, I would love to hear you riff a little bit on some of the stories you've been tracking there, whether it's in Florida or in Arizona, where, where universities are sort of speaking up for the um, for the good information that we actually need right now to help us move forward. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's, it's funny. I, as somebody who covers an industry as a a journalist who is not part of the industry, you know, I've got a bachelor's degree. I've never worked at a university. Um, I I do want higher ed, you know, some form of post-secondary education to work for this country. I am a Homer in the sense that I think (laughs) we do need to prepare people for jobs. Um, and, you know, and I, and I worry about the industry, but I do think, you know, on the whole, higher ed has, has, has stepped up pr- pretty well in this incredibly difficult time. And, you know, uh, Princeton uh, pushed back very hard on uh, the White House when it criticized 
highly selective wealthy institutions for uh, the emergency aid. And as you probably remember, Princeton said, you know what, we weren't going to take it. We never planned to take it. But we are, well, one of the reasons is because we couldn't use it for undocumented students, which we mm -hmm. actually think is against our policy. Um, you know, and if you read the statement, it was strong. And, it, you know, when you have 20 some billion dollars in your Princeton and Einstein went there, you can, you can <laughs> you take can your lumps that. with the White House. Exactly. But I, I've seen it elsewhere, too. Um, as you referenced, Arizona State and the University of Arizona uh, were faced a lot of pressure to stop doing COVID modeling. Their, their research teams there, uh, a, a health official for the state pulled their access to data and asked them to halt modeling uh, the day that the governor announced that they would reopen. And they said, nope, going to keep doing that. That's our role as universities. And uh, you're seeing that in Florida now with uh, you know a, a researcher who was leading their modeling in the state lost her job and said she was worried about access to data for university folks and, and some researchers at several of the universities in the state said the same thing. So it does feel like to your point that higher ed uh, is, is testing its uh, strength in some ways. Another one, uh, probably the best example, the California community colleges sued Betsy DeVos and the mm -hmm. department over their decision to exclude undocumented students from uh, emergency aid under the CARES Act. Yesterday, uh, the department put out a clarification statement, which I think the consensus is did not clarify. Um, <laughs> no, it, might have confused. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they said, you know, this, the, this doesn't have the rule of law or previous guidance, but underlying law says that you can exclude these students. Um, and there's some speculation out there that this may have something to do with that lawsuit from the California community colleges. Yeah, I was I was certainly reading that with interest. That was on a Thursday, so I don't I don't know what a Friday is going to hold for us when it comes to news at the end before a long <laughs> weekend. But uh, I do think that that ability of higher education to to speak for those who may feel voiceless in this in this system, um, it's where I wanted to ask you next. I, I talked to you before about some of the stories that maybe we haven't been hearing yet, and the voices that we've not necessarily heard yet, and especially when it comes to issues of equity, vulnerable student populations, and even faculty voice? How do we get more of that into the dialogue across the summer? Great question. And again, I, I think it's just we're, we're surfing a tsunami. And when you're trying to determine how billions or trillions of dollars in aid will, will uh, be used to help state budgets, well, like, you know, Colorado this week, unbelievable, a 58% cut to their public colleges, mm -hmm. which was largely erased, uh, made it a 5% cut by the governor, Jared Polis, using emergency aid to allocate mm -hmm. $450 million. I mean, that is, in a couple of minutes here, we're looking at just enormous change. So I agree with you. I think some of the more kind of human uh, pieces of this have gotten lost. And we're, we're trying to do more of that at Inside mm -hmm. Higher Ed. But, I, you know, one story that I feel like I'm just not seeing much of, we've done a little bit about it. Uh, the, the professorate on the whole is not young. Uh, I, I remember mm -hmm. we had we had written about some data about the aging professorate, the, the large percentage of folks that are over 50 or 60. If you're in that age group, do you want to be on a college campus this fall? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, obviously there has been some coverage of that, but you're, you're at risk. And, you know, I know when Mitch Daniels went on uh, one of the talk shows this week and said, no faculty member is compelled to work at Purdue. I, I think that scared some people like our, our you know, what, what sort of kind of contractual responsibilities are some universities going to exercise in this? Um, you know, as always, and again, I don't, this sounds harsher than it, it should, but I, I feel like we continue to expend way too much energy on the whole 
worrying about the highly selective colleges and, mm-hmm. you know, to n- in no ways minimize, you know, I feel terrible for students who missed out on their last semester, you know, even Princeton students, I know they're going to be okay in the long run, <laughs> but that stinks. And, you know, the disruption is terrible for everyone across all of higher ed, but, you know, just looking at, you know, 20 plus percent unemployment in some states, a lot of the community college students have lost their jobs Mm -hmm. and the budgets for their institutions, if they return in the fall, aren't looking good. And, you know, the early, there's a lot of debate of whether the vulnerable adult students are going to come back in the fall. Um, And a lot of reasons to think it's hard to predict, but there are some signs that, you know, the, the FAFSA renewals as That's NCAN right. put out are, are down and particularly among low-income students. I've been very concerned about that. Living in Tennessee with Tennessee Promise and all of the investments the state has made, you can actually drive down the interstate here and see billboards telling you to complete your FAFSA. It's been a really interesting marketing campaign, but even our numbers, they're very proud in the state of Tennessee about their FAFSA numbers. Number one, uh, right? I think. Very, and always, right? And uh, But they're down. And, and they're mm-hmm. down for adult learners. They're down across the board for people that still have financial aid eligibility. Um, I have also really worried about this notion that folks think there's going to be this counter-cyclical bump, right? Like it's a down economy, the job prospects are bad, we'll go back to school and sort of discounting the amount of uncertainty and the financial hit um, yeah. that, that folks are, are facing. I don't think, this is me editorializing, I don't think it's going to happen quite as quickly. And I think the places they'll typically turn, like community colleges, may really struggle with the investments and support services that are necessary um, to do so well this fall if they don't get more investment. Yeah, totally good point. I we've been writing about a weekly poll that Strata has been doing Mm -hmm. on uh, education plans and disruption to students in workforce. Um, And you know, it's almost like we've become desensitized to the news. And that the unemployment hit is not maybe sinking in. I mean, first of all, it's insane. I mean, I've never, none of us have ever lived through Seen 20 these plus numbers. Months, nothing yeah. like that. And, and, you know, it's a different time than the depression, obviously, uh, you know, maybe we can bounce back faster. Who knows? I totally agree with you though. It, you know, I, and, but again, this is like, like everything we've talked about. I don't know. I mean, there isn't any really, any consensus emerging about the fall for community colleges. Uh, I was really surprised, frankly, Moody's put out uh, a report on the community college sector this week that was pretty stable. Um, And one of the reasons that I know a lot of folks have talked about is that unlike most depression recessions, um, you know, you're looking at a time when people want to stay local where Mm -hmm. students who might've traveled to go to a residential college may not. So in addition to that usual counter-cyclical people trying to retrain to re-enter the workforce, you may have that factor too. I think that's right. And I we have been saying, whether you're thinking about that adult who's looking for their associates, their bachelor's degree, or just a certificate in a high demand field, or even our master's markets, everything feels more hyper-local now. And then when you add the pandemic on top of that, people's concerns about travel or just being distant from their family. Um, I think that that hyper-local market is going to be really interesting to watch as we head into the new year. Yeah. And, and another factor, and I'm hearing this from a lot of community college folks, you know, they, they are forced to be flexible. You know, if they're doing their jobs right, 
They have thought about a range of options for working adults. They have hybrid and online offerings they've started to, to, to roll out before this. So theoretically, they could be better placed. They don't have residential campuses in most in large numbers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I again, I feel like in the other side of it, you have a, a student population that tends to be much more vulnerable and much less able to thrive in a lot of online environments or willing to, frankly. I, I had one community college president tell me that they had surveyed students and 35% they said they wouldn't come back if it was online in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and again, as if anyone who has a child and is working from home knows and, and is fortunate enough to have a job where you can work from home, childcare is a big factor in all this too, when you don't know if kids are going to be going back to school this fall. That's exactly right. We've been talking about the need for childcare to support learners who are balancing their academics, personal and professional pursuits, but even more so right now when, when the state of, of all of that for the fall seems uncertain. Yeah, well, we've it's talked hard to- for me right now. I can't imagine how hard it is for a community college student who has two kids and has lost their job. Yeah, it's incomprehensible. It, it is. And I, you know, I think that's why I've loved the stories and, and you touched on faculty members. You know, I personally would love to see more of that. I think what makes higher education so unique and powerful is its shared governance model. And in many of the conversations that I've had with institutional leaders about their fall reopening plans, I keep asking, where's that faculty voice? Um, So whether it's the 30% who are in that category of high risk by age alone, uh, or simply it's going to take their innovation and buy-in for us to make it through whatever the fall has to hold. Uh, So I'm hopeful over the summer we'll see even more of that faculty leadership um, emerging. You know, I agree. But in in the podcast, that an episode that you and I did, uh, where I had interviewed Paul LeBlanc from Southern New Hampshire, mm-hmm. uh, he said something in there that suggested that the traditional shared governance model may be more threatened by this than people think. He said mm-hmm. it much better than I just did, so I won't even try to. But, you know, <laughs> I think an institution that has the ability to hire people on short-term contracts mm-hmm. to, to, you know, uh, for, uh, for bad or for good, uh, amid uncertainty is probably going to be better off right now than those that don't even know if they're going to have students for that revenue this fall. It's a tough situation. It is a tough situation. I feel like we could do an entire conversation about the future of the, the professoriate as we go forward and have certainly been getting those questions as well. So that might be a good idea for us later on. Oh, just well, on that real fast, you know, yeah, I feel like, and I know you know this as, as well as anyone, it feels like the bottom line is these changes were coming. These tensions mm-hmm. were coming with the demographic cliff, frankly, the kicking of the can of the adjunctification of, of higher mm-hmm. education. But it's here now in a matter of months as opposed to years. That's exactly right. We've said these are trends that have simply accelerated. If you thought you had until 2030, um, I've always laughed a little at higher ed with their five-year strategic planning cycles, right? Let's take the cycle out the window. Um, we're going to have to figure out something for 2021, if, if not the fall of 2020. Absolutely. Um, so the last thing, sort of to wrap things up here today, what are the stories that you're watching right now? Or, or what are you most excited about that we should be watching out for, either upcoming episodes of The Key or, or other things that we need to put on our radio? Yeah, good question. Uh, you know, and it's it's funny, it's like it's such a day-to-day thing. Um, you know, uh, I mentioned the strata data that we're going to be doing a lot more with, um, p- partnering with them on writing about that in, in more depth um, to kind of get a sense of what are people thinking about, but students, families, employers, 
about the credentials that will make sense, that will be a relatively safe bet amid the recovery that we haven't started. I think that's going to be the big biggie. Um, and of course, the transformational potential to all of higher education. Um, you know, uh, this week, Amy Klobuchar, who I gather is now possibility uh, a possibility as a, a vice presidential candidate on the ticket, um, she put out a bipartisan bill, which we don't see a lot of these days, to do a $4,000 tax credit for anyone who's lost their job as a result of the pandemic to get retrained. And it's very open. It's, you know, distance education, apprenticeships, pretty much anything you want. It doesn't have to be an accredited provider, I believe. That coupled with you know, the, the schools that were doing online well before, I think they're all up. Maybe not all, never say all as a journalist, but I, I just saw <laughs> ASU online is up 16.5 compared That's to right. last year. I believe SNU is up even more than that, Southern New Hampshire. Um, I talked with uh, Rachel Carlson from Guild last week mm-hmm. about an acquisition of theirs. And she said most of their partners are up, if not all. Um, you know, they work with eight or so online uh, programs at institutions that are mm-hmm. online, uh, University of Florida online. So I do wonder about, frankly, in a tectonic shift, who are the winners and losers? What are the modalities and the credentials that will emerge? I think that's right. And I think those that already made the investment, they've got the portfolio, the marketing, the brand reach. And when a student asks, is this a good investment? Um, they have the stories and the outcomes to back it up. I, I can understand why their inquiries and applicants are looking strong. And I think on the employment side, it'll be really interesting. I'm actually hopeful that we might see a right sizing of some of what I've called the up credentialing, where you know it's not enough to just be an RN. You've got to have the BSN and the DNP and all the way up the ladder. Uh, so that'll be really interesting to watch this fall and, and sort of... I don't want to say that the degree is is dead by any means. I don't believe it. But can we get a bit more creative with some of these shorter format opportunities? Well, I know there's been a lot of frustration with our system's lack of cohesiveness around licensing and credentials. And to your point, uh, you know, New York State, a bunch of other states uh, helped kind of speed the entry to the system of healthcare workers by uh, mm-hmm. uh, relaxing some of the requirements. And you do wonder once some of these, uh, the, once some of these decisions are out of the bag, how do you bring them back? Do we want to bring them back? Do, you know, um, I, I agree with you. I, I think uh, credential inflation is going to be an interesting topic going forward. What, what sort of training or, or credential do you need to get a job on the back end of this in a transformed economy? And I hope, uh, as as much as we hope for more bipartisan support for the kinds of relief funds and legislation that we're going to need in the country, I hope we also see a a new conversation so there's not so much the false dichotomy between education and training and we get back to students first, what do they need and and how are we all going to need to chip in uh, to get the economy back on its its feet. Here, here. Well, Paul, thank you so much. We'll look forward to future episodes of The Key and are so grateful to have this conversation with you here today on Office Hours. Thank you, Carl. It was fun. Thanks for listening. Join us next week on Office Hours when David Addis is back. And this time he's going to chat with American Association of State Colleges and Universities President, Dr. Mildred Garcia, about protecting, serving the most vulnerable student populations on campus. See you then. From EAB, I'm Matt Pellish.